Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good to see everybody today. Good morning. Uh, did anybody else have like trouble getting here today? Yeah, okay. It's kind of like old New York, right? <laughs> I guess things are back uh, and happening. What is it, a marathon or something going on today? Ugh. Anyway, uh, for those of you who made it here, good to see you. We are going through a series in Second Corinthians, and uh, Dennis, thank you for that wonderful reading. Let's uh, let's begin by a word of prayer. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you just for uh, this word, and we um, you know we thank you for your presence and for your spirit. And you know, all of us are coming from different places, not just uh, geographically, but um, you know, emotionally, and um, you know just some of the things that we've been through uh, in the last week even the last month, um, but you promised to meet us here where we are, and you promised to, um, uh, I guess in the promise of the resurrection, you promised to give us hope and uh, raise us to new life, and so we pray that your word would do that today. Uh, it would challenge us, correct us, uh, but also give us great encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are going through this series on 2 Corinthians, and one of the reasons why we're going through it is to reflect on these themes of weakness and power. And we've been talking about how Paul has been in this kind of conflict with some people in the Corinthian church because they're questioning his, uh, the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry on uh, the account of things that they perceive to be disqualifying for somebody to be an apostle, things like he has low social status or lack of rhetorical gifts or things like his life situation and his life of poverty. Uh, in other words, these are things that reflect weakness and some people are disqualifying his apostolic ministry on account of these things. Now, for those of you who have ever gone through the process of looking for a job or interviewing a jo for a job, you know that one of the things you're supposed to do is you're supposed to try to present yourself in the best light possible. And so you craft your res uh, resume and you emphasize all the things that you're good at. When you do an interview, you're supposed to answer the question in such a way that, you know, you draw attention away from uh, your weaknesses and draw more attention to your strengths. So if they ask you something about you, 
uh, an area where you have no experience, right? You, the way you answer is not supposed to be like, well, I have no experience in that, but the way you answer is very creatively and highlight some of the soft skills and the ways that you can contribute to whatever position it is, right? That's, that's kind of how the world works, and um, that's kind of how Corinthian society worked. And if they were going to give Paul a job interview for being an apostle, uh, he would have bombed that interview based on this letter because all he does is he highlights his weakness. But that's his point. Uh, the gospel is about our weakness and God's power and therefore the content of not only Paul's message but even his life and his ministry is a reflection of this gospel. Now, what this conflict between Paul and the Corinthians shows us is their values are obviously not aligned. Uh, in any kind of relationship, whether it's maybe a working relationship, whether it's a personal relationship, you run into conflict and tension when values are not aligned. So uh, when I do premarital counseling, uh, one of the topics I'll go over is the topic of finance and money. And I usually say the reason why couples will fight over money, it's usually not about dollars and cents, but it's a fight over values. Uh, what you decide to spend your money on comes down to what you value in life. And so if one person values saving money and the other person values uh, something like, I don't know, life experiences like travel or going to uh, nice restaurants, there's going to be a conflict because there's a conflict in values. And the thing about money is that because it's limited and you have a finite amount, uh, that means ultimately you have to decide on what is valuable to you as a couple, as a family, enough what's important enough to allocate right these dollars that you earn to now that's actually not a money or a finance issue but the way I see it it's a value issue there's a misalignment in values and that's usually the point of tension and conflict now that example doesn't really reflect what's going on here in Corinth because the problem is not simply a difference in opinion uh, the misalignment here is more like the misalignment on uh, the wheel of a car uh, we just had to get something fixed on our car, so cars on my mind. But you know, sometimes uh, cars can start shaking if uh, one of the wheels are not aligned correctly, right? You drive it and you start the steering wheel starts to shake, and it's like, oh, you know, something is is not right. Uh, and well, sometimes what that means is one of the tires are not aligned properly, and so you have to get a wheel alignment. And the problem there is not that the uh, the tires have a difference of opinion. <laughs> the problem is the tires are not aligned correctly. One of them is crooked. One of them is not going straight. And I would say that's probably more of the situation here in Corinth in that their values are not aligned with Paul in that their, their values are crooked to some degree. And Paul is setting out to align them to the values of the kingdom of God. And what the Corinthians have done is they have aligned themselves with the world's systems, with the world's values, the one that boasts in gifts, the one that boasts in achievements, the one that boasts in status and wealth. Whereas Paul, his values are aligned with the cross. Uh, things like weakness, things like sincerity, things like humility. These are some of the values that Paul espouses. And so Paul addresses this misalignment of their values in this passage and he tells them look as followers of a crucified messiah uh, what they ought to be doing is they ought to be rejecting uh, this this desire to conform to the value system of the world but conform to the value system of god because god has made them temples of the living god and the way paul does it is he uses pretty stark language i don't know if uh, what kind of 
feeling uh, or opinions you had as you were hearing scripture being read, but the language is pretty direct and pretty stark. So the passage begins with Paul saying, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A yoke, if you're not familiar with what a yoke is, a yoke is basically this harness that goes over the neck of an animal and it would be attached to something, for example, like a plow. And that's the way uh, you, know, you would use animals to kind of pull the plow. And sometimes there were these double harnesses where now you get two animals. You yoke two animals together in order to get twice the power. But uh, you couldn't yoke two different kinds of animals together because they wouldn't be compatible. They wouldn't pull the plow together. And there's actually a law found in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy that reflects that. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, it actually forbids the yoking together of an ox and a donkey for plowing. And Paul is probably thinking about that law and about that verse when he makes this statement. Uh, there's also another law that a lot of the commentators are suggesting Paul is thinking about found in Leviticus 19.19, 19, which forbids the, the mating, the breeding of two different breeds of cattle. And the reason why they link uh, what Paul is saying here with that verse is because that word translated as yoke is the same word that's uh, translated as breed in, Levit in that Leviticus passage. And so if you're reading these laws, um, and you're kind of wondering, uh, I don't understand the point of these laws. Well, Paul's illuminating at, at least one of the points of these laws in terms of what they're supposed to teach us when he applies it to how believers are supposed to be distinct from unbelievers. And Paul is stating this in a negative, negative by telling us what we should not do, but there is a positive way of looking at what Paul is saying, and the positive way is this. You know, when you become a Christian believer, when you receive the grace of God, when you uh, receive the gospel, when you exercise the gift of faith and uh, you receive uh, the message of the gospel and Jesus through the preaching of the gospel, what that means is you become an entirely new creature. Jesus doesn't just make you a better version of yourself as if you know, if you're lacking in some area, Jesus will compensate for what you lack. It's not as though 60% of you is good and 40% of you is not so good. And what Jesus is going to do is deal with that 40% of you that's not good so you can be a better version of yourself. Uh, that's not uh, the gospel. And that would make Christianity basically a religion of self-improvement, which is not what Christianity is. But Jesus came to make dead people, people who were dead in their trespasses, alive through the power of the resurrection. It's about putting to death our old self and Jesus raising us to life in a, our new self. And this is some of the things that Paul talks about in the previous passage. Paul says it more directly when he says we are a new creation, right? The old has gone, the new has come. And so the reason why believers are supposed to resist conforming to the patterns of this world, the reason why believers are supposed to remain distinct uh, from the values of this world is not to become a better person, but it's actually to live out this new identity that has been given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's rhetorical questions are coming from when he says things like this. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And Belial is a reference to Satan. Uh, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
And so you, so you see, what he's saying here is there is a distinction between believer and unbeliever that is so sharp that there cannot be fellowship between the two. And just to clarify a little bit here, Paul's not saying this in the sense as, a, you know, like a parent might say to, to their kids in terms of like, oh, don't hang out with like the bad kids at school. Paul's not saying that believers are inherently superior, morally superior than unbelievers based on... Uh, and, you know, based on life experience, uh, that's not always the case, right? But he is saying that because of Christ, believers have been given this new and distinct identity through a new creation, and that is what sets believers apart. And that's where he's coming from when he tells the Corinthians to remain distinct from unbelievers. Now, I, I know the kind of culture we live in, and uh, I'm sure some people are probably thinking this. This is the very reason why people don't like Christianity, right? It's just too distinct and it's too intolerant and therefore this is what makes Christianity unattractive to people. Uh, you know, if I brought somebody who was not a believer to this sermon, uh, how are they going to respond? This is like a kind of an offensive thing to say. And if you're thinking that, well, let me share something uh, that I read in an article a couple years ago. Uh, it, came from, it comes from The Spectator, which is like this British magazine. And the writer of this article is named Ben Sixsmith, who, by the way, doesn't identify as a Christian. And he wrote this uh, article called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. And what he does in it is he basically criticize, he criticizes what he calls, uh, right, quote, with a twist of Christianity kind of trend that he's been seeing. Uh, it's a trend that basically adopts this like worldly secular uh, value system, this worldly secular culture, uh, a culture, and this is both on the right and the left, but uh, a culture that, you know, lifts up things like power and influence and money while putting on this little veneer of Christianity over it, right, uh, with a twist of Christianity. And I'm not going to mention the specific names or institutions that he's critiquing here, but uh, he seems to be, ha he seems to have a problem or see a problem with some of these institutions in the sense that uh, they're basically just like the world or they're trying to be just like the world and they're doing things just like the world but uh, couching it in right Christianity. And uh, I think you know the way he concludes the article is pretty powerful. So let me let me read his uh, last paragraph. This is what he writes. He says, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And I think this, this writer, uh, this non-religious writer, person can even see that a Christianity that wants to conform to the values of the world and doesn't want to remain distinct from the world is not really a Christianity that is worth following at all. Not only that, but I would also say a Christianity that compromises in holiness. Holiness means being set apart. It's a Christianity that also lacks power. That's not always going to be clear because sometimes there are immediate gains to adopting worldly values and uh, things that resemble the world in terms of power and influence. But what I mean is Christianity without holiness is ultimately going to lack the very kind of power that we need, which is God's power. Now, why is that? Uh, I'm going to start by talking about the Holy Spirit. And it may not seem all that related to this text, but we will find our way back to this text, and you'll see what I mean. 
there's this New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee, and he wrote this book on the Holy Spirit, uh, drawing from what Paul says specifically about the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know, Paul's letters show us that the Holy Spirit is three Ps. It's a person, or he's a person. He's a presence, and he's a power. Person, presence, power. And the Holy Spirit is all three of these things together. And with respect to his power and presence, what Gordon Fee says is the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Uh, there's this connection between the presence of God in our lives and the power of God in our lives, which makes complete sense in view of uh, the Old Testament. Because, you know, when the presence of God, which was symbolized uh, in the ark, when the presence of God was with Israel, they would be victorious in battle. When the ark was not with them, they would lose in battle. And there was a power associated with the presence of God, even when Israel was uh, in a position of weakness. And so what does that have to do with this text? Well, Paul here, he talks about the temple. And in the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God would dwell. And that's why the temple is so important to the people of God, because without the temple, there's no worship, and there is no sense that God is amongst his people. And that's why when the temple is destroyed, it's a very traumatic experience for the Israelites. That's also why in the post-exilic period, one of the first things that they wanted to do was to rebuild the temple because the temple is where God dwelt. They, they knew that as long as God was with them, uh, it didn't matter how weak they were, but God was always going to be more powerful. And yet, as important as the temple was to the people of God, God's presence is still somewhat restricted under this old covenant on account of sin. And we, we covered some of that in you know, previous passages in this series. But things ultimately change when Jesus enters into the picture because you know, what's interesting about the New Testament is as important as the temple is in the Old Testament, uh, it's not really a point of emphasis in the New Testament. And that's because the coming of Jesus changes everything. When Jesus comes... Uh, what the gospel writer tells us after his death on a cross is the curtain temple is torn in two, and that signifies now God's presence is no longer localized and confined to this man-made building, but now God's presence is unleashed. Unleashed to where? To whom? To the church. The Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, and now the church becomes the new living temple of God where God dwells. And if that is the case... If we are the temple of the living God, uh, that means holiness matters, right? That means being a, a temple fit for him matters. And when God dwells in us, that means there is power, his power, because it's connected to his presence. Now, in the second part of verse 16, Paul starts drawing from a variety of Old Testament scriptures where God promises to make his dwelling among us, and then he promises that he would be our God and we would be his people, and it's this complete restoration of a broken, personal, intimate relationship that had once been corrupted by sin. It is now the reconciliation of this relationship where God reconciles us to himself and makes us the new temple. And therefore, you know, holiness is not about uh, moral superiority, and it's not about... Um, you know, trying to gain God, God's acceptance by our holy living. Holiness is important because what that means is God has given us this new identity. He has made us a new creation. He has made us a, his temple so that he could dwell among us. 
And if that's true, then it is incredibly important not to conform to the value system of this world, but to live as a distinct people in conformity to God's value system. Now, <coughs> uh, by the way, there are plenty of people, I think, who want to be distinct for the sake of being distinct because when there's a lot of people or there's a lot of companies or there's a lot of comp competition, one of the ways in which you stand out amongst your peers or amongst competitors is to be different, is to be distinct. It's one of the ways in which uh, we market ourselves. And the way you uh, make yourself distinct is you create this distinct culture, you cult cultivate distinct habits maybe, uh, you have a distinct brand. A in other words, you make yourself distinct based on what you do. And it's easy to think that the call to holiness is similar in that we make our distinct ourselves distinct from the world based on what we do. But you can see what Paul is showing us here is that God actually works in the reverse. Uh, it's not what we do that gives us identity, but it's an identity that is given that drives what we do. It's not that we make ourselves distinct by what we do, but if you look at the order of the Old Testament scriptures, the first thing that God says is, I will make my dwelling among them. And then it says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. And by the way, just so there is no confusion Confusion, again, this isn't saying that believers are not supposed to interact with unbelievers because not only is that impossible, <laughs> but if that were true, then it would be very difficult to make sense of a whole lot of other parts of the Bible. But in this context, what matters is ultimately worship. Uh, some of you might know that this passage is sometimes used to explain why a believer is not supposed to marry an unbeliever. And if you use this passage alone, uh, it's you know, it might be a kind of a difficult argument to make, and there's plenty of other places in the Bible that would make that argument. But, you know, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were forbidden from intermarrying with foreigners, and uh, you know why? Uh, it's not that God is xenophobic, but ultimately it was a matter of worship for him. So uh, the ethnic identity of the people were tied to their faith and worship, and so when an Israelite would marry with a foreigner, uh, what it would do is it would bring in idol worship right, into uh, the people of Israel. And that was actually the downfall of King Solomon. Uh, you would think that it was the fact that he, you know, married with so many, uh, so many women, uh, but it was actually he married foreign women. And these foreign women, they brought idol worship into the kingdom of Israel, and that ultimately is what led to the fall of the kingdom of Israel. Now, in the New Testament, faith is no longer defined by ethnic identity, uh, but the New Testament's version of intermarriage, I think, is when a believer and an unbeliever marry. And I, my intention of saying this is actually not to focus on marriage, and I've had so <laughs> many of those conversations with people in private, but I mentioned this to say the concern, God's concern here, is purity of worship. That's his concern. And once you compromise in worship, you defile the temple. And when we compromise our bodies and our spirits, we defile God's temple. We defile uh, our worship. Now, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't say what I'm going to say next is necessarily biblical, but uh, I've wondered if this is ultimately what hinders revival. I don't believe we have any power over when God moves and when God decides to move and uh, when people uh, come to repentance and faith and there's a tremendous fruit of the Holy Spirit. I think God brings revival when he decides to bring revival. But that said, if the church is not living out its identity as the temple of the living God, but partnering with 
lawlessness and partnering with darkness, I do wonder if maybe that's one of the reasons that revival's hindered. Because the only way revival comes is when God's powerful presence is among us, right? And I wonder if it's when God sees his people resisting the world's system of power and status and prestige and wealth and yet embracing uh, a life of the cross, embracing weakness, embracing lowliness, embracing an impoverished spirit. I wonder if that's when God decides to dwell amongst his people in a powerful way. I don't know. Uh, it's just something I think in my mind. Now, also, I wonder, uh, <coughs> you know, I, I, can, I can hear people, um, you know, if someone were to say, you know, you shouldn't do that, right? You shouldn't defile your body or your spirit uh, as an unbeliever. I, I can hear people kind of scoffing at that and kind of responding, saying like, <laughs> right, who, who are you to tell me what to do? And th there's a lot of that in the church as well. But I wonder if we respond by saying, wow, you know, you're right. I should take the call to being holy much more seriously because God is holy. I wonder if that's when the church begins to become a dwelling place fit for God. And I know sometimes people say that in the wrong way. I know the tone is oftentimes wrong or full of smugness or full of judgment. And uh, I, I hear you. I hate that too. But still, I do think we have to take obedience seriously. We have to take the call to what we're supposed to do with our, interestingly, right, he talks about bodies, what we're supposed to do with our bodies seriously, what we do with our spirits seriously, uh, and engage seriously because God has given us these new identities as his living temple. And how do we do that? I don't think the answer is actually that complicated, but I do think the answer is not very attractive uh, in our culture. The first part uh, is we have to lean on God's promises, which I don't think will be a problem. That, that part we like. I think the second part is we have to live obediently in the fear of God. And that's what Paul says in 7.1. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I've already talked about the fear of God a little bit in a previous uh, sermon. Uh, but the fear of God is something that really directs Paul and drives Paul. And it's one of the reasons he gives as an explanation for why he uh, endures what he does in gospel ministry. And, you know, the fear of God doesn't mean that we're supposed to be scared of God as if he's going to smite us when we do something wrong. Uh, because I don't think that's the correct picture of God as well. Uh, and that kind of obedience will come more from the sense of being coerced rather than uh, a sense of delight. But I think the kind of obedience that we're supposed to have is probably more understandable in Asian cultures. And uh, here's what I mean. You know, I think Asian cultures have a better understanding of this because uh, of how Asian cultures, uh, what Asian cultures believe about honoring uh, our parents. Um, you know, there is a sense in which children want to please their parents as a way to honor them. And, you know, I know that can go sideways, but at its best, I do think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, at its best, it's rooted in a relationship of love. It's rooted in a sense that my parents have given so much to me that I just want to honor them through my obedience to them. I just want to honor them and please them with the life that they have given me because... Uh, they've given me so much, right? That's, I know that's not everybody's experience, but that's the best, uh, 
the most ideal form of what that's supposed to look like. And I think that's actually a little bit closer to what it means to live in the fear of God than some of the other conceptions we have. Uh, we know that God has given us so much. There is such a deep reverence for him that we want to honor him with our lives, with our obedience, and all that we do. And that also fits with another promise that we see in verse 18 where God says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. We are sons and daughters to a father who has given us new life. We are sons and daughters to a father who has given us new family. We are sons and daughters of a father who has given us this new identity as the temple of the living God. And if that is true, then the way we live our lives uh, matters a great deal, is incredibly important. And Paul says, be distinct, right? Do not be yoked with unbelievers, but be distinct from the values and the systems of this world. Live in such a way as to, Paul's words, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And I suspect when, um, you know, it's hard not to look at the, the, the American church and the stories that come out in the American church and be incredibly <laughs> discouraged, uh, especially the stories that come out. Uh, and, you know, people are leaving the church because of it, right? Uh, now, whose fault is that? I, I don't think it's the people leaving the church. Uh, my suspicion is the church has compromised in its holiness and adopted too much of the values of the world. And only in repentance, only when uh, we become a dwelling place fit for God, do I suspect maybe that's when we become uh, the temple of the living, living God. God dwells in his people. God dwells in his church. I suspect that's when we'll see his power at work. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, uh, I think we hear a word like this, and it's not exactly the most inspirational word, and it's not exactly the most um, uh, uplifting word. But nevertheless, it is a word that is important for us to hear. And, you know, uh, I don't know where we all are uh, individually or even our particular church, but... Uh, you know, it, it is clear that there is a strong temptation to try to become more like the world and try to gain influence and power and use power uh, just as the world would use power and to hide our weakness and to hide our vulnerability and to only highlight our strengths and the things that we're good at and to be dependent upon those things, uh, to disassociate with things that we consider to be lowly uh, if they bring us down in our status along with it. And I suspect maybe this was some of the uh, problems with the church in Corinth. Um, but I pray, God, that, uh, you know, more than anything, uh, as we've been trying to, to reinforce, uh, change doesn't happen when we will ourselves to, to be better. Um, but the first action comes from you. And we need the gift of faith to be able to embrace some of those things. And we need the gift of faith to be able to uh, believe those things, to internalize those things. And one of these great promises is that we are a new creation. Uh, you know, by grace and nothing of ourselves and not our moral superior superiority, you have made us different. You have made us your very temple 
where you dwell. And therefore, we want to uh, embrace that identity and respond by taking this call to holy living with the utmost seriousness. Uh, it's so easy. We're, we're so weak in this area because it's so easy to conform to the values of the world, uh, especially as every day we're uh, surrounded and drinking deeply of um, you know, the, the counsel of the world, whether it's about uh, you know, how we treat people, whether it's about what we do with our bodies, whether it's about, um, you know, maybe especially in New York, uh, the pursuit of wealth and financial security. Um, and of course, not all of those things are bad in of themselves. Um, but when we compromise in our worship and value these things above you, uh, we know they can be deadly. And they compromise and they defile your holy temple. And so we ask you to help us, help us to resist these things and help us to conform uh, to you, help us to conform to your holiness, help us to conform to the values of the kingdom, which oftentimes will look paradoxical and not, um, not immediately apparent, especially when we compare it to the values of this world. But give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name we pray.